Good morning, everyone. Am I working okay? Yeah. What a pleasure and joy to be here, and what a joy we had at the, at the marriage retreat. And as Judy and I have gotten to know your congregation and some of your people, it's just been, it's been a joy. I don't know how else to say it, but it's been fun to be here. We've, we've uh, been to a lot of churches around the country and, and done retreats and parenting conferences and so forth, and this is a special church, so you could be really thankful for what God has done here and for your leadership. So I'm going to talk about humility, and uh, before I do, I'd like to pray. I know we've already prayed, but I'd like to, let's humble ourselves before the Lord one more time. I'd like, I need to do that for my own good as well as for yours, so let's pray together. Father in heaven, together we come to you, and we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for making us your children. We thank you that you are our Father. And as our Father now, this morning we come to you and we ask you to speak to us because we're all slow of hearing or hard of hearing. And we confess that to you. We need to have you open the eyes of our hearts and open the ears of our hearts to hear from you. And I, I confess that this is utterly beyond me. It's a supernatural work. So I ask you and my brothers and sisters ask you to be with us as we break the word this morning and change us, Lord, we pray. We come to you in Jesus' name and we pray this, amen. I wanna start with a story this morning that I've told before uh, about 10 years ago when I was 65 and still very young. Uh, I took a bike ride. I, I, ride a, I ride a road bike for exercise. And at the time I had a 35-year-old Peugeot 10-speed it was all beat up that I got at a garage sale for 150 bucks and I was wearing a Walmart t-shirt and Eddie Barr swimming trunks and I did have a bike helmet on, okay? I'm telling, this is all important to the story, I'll tell you in a moment. So I went about three miles and I got a flat tire. I'm not very mechanical. So I pulled off the bike into the ditch. I hate flat tires because I always, this is a road bike and it had those really skinny tires that are really hard to change. I've gotten rid of it since then. Anyway, so I, here I am in the ditch trying to repair this tire. Uprides this young man, about 40 years of age, on a $5,000 titanium bicycle, okay? I mean, this guy is sculpted. He, by the way, I was about 20 pounds heavier then than I am now. This young man was, there wasn't an ounce of body fat on him anywhere. His muscles bulging everywhere. This expensive road racing bike uniform, you know, the skin-tight pants, the skin-tight top. You know, the, I mean, he's tanned. And he says, can I help you with your flat tire? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm having troubles getting this flat tire fixed. Oh, he said, I'm glad to help you. So he gets off his bike, he pulls out this really fancy, expensive tool, and he's got the tire fixed just like that. Of course, I'm feeling intimidated. I'm 25 years older, I'm overweight, I got this scuzzy bike, this all this, no fancy equipment of any kind. So I said to him, how far are you riding today? Oh, I'm only going 65 miles today. He said, I'm, I'm getting ready for a, I'm gonna race in a 150 mile race next week. And so today I'm only doing 65 miles. So he said, how far are you going? Oh, I said, uh, I'm going 15 miles. That was a wee bit of a stretch, but. <laughs> That was as far as I ever went was 15 miles. Oh, okay, great. He said, so we got on our bikes and whew, 
he's gone. We, we're going uphill. We're about two miles. And he is going uphill about 20 miles an hour. And I, I can't even begin to keep up with him. So he's gone. And he's gone. I was glad he was gone because I was feeling really intimidated by this guy, if you know what I mean. And I was glad to be, he was nice to me and I appreciated that, but it was, you know, I was comparing myself to him and it was not a good comparison. So then I went about three miles down the road on a long level stretch. And ahead of me, I can see two other, two other cyclists. Maybe they're half a mile down the road. I'm going very fast. And on those one-speed bikes with the big balloon tires, so I, I caught up with them pretty quick, and I went around them. And as I went around them, I, I looked at them, and they were a little bit overweight and kind of out of shape. And they were dressed even shabbier than I was. And as I went by them, I thought to myself, I kind of went around them, and I looked down on them. I thought to myself, I'm glad I'm not like, I'm glad I'm in better shape than these guys are. You know, I'm glad I'm on a better bike than a one-speed bike with balloon tires. And I'm, I'm kind of puffed up in my arrogance and thinking about how special I am. So I went about another quarter mile and the Holy Spirit brought me into the most amazing conviction. As I, all of a sudden I realized that I had just experienced the two outstanding symptoms or fruits of pride, arrogance. The first was the intimidation. I was intimidated by this guy because I wanted to be like him or better than him. I, I wanted to measure up to him. See, I wasn't content with myself. I wasn't content with who I was, this old 65-year-old guy, a little bit over, overweight on mediocre, uh, crummy old equipment, okay? Out of shape. I wanted to be the 40-year-old guy on the hot bike that was doing a 200-mile race. And the other symptom was me going around these other people and looking down on them, okay? And this is all of us, isn't it? At any rate, I right away was... Refreshed, and refreshed myself in the gospel, I stopped and said, okay, Lord, I'm so thankful for the gospel because the gospel, the cross of Christ, redeems me from this sin. It forgives me for this sin and it motivates me to change. And that's our subject this morning. We're going to study Philippians 2 in a few minutes and talk about pride and, the, and the, how serious a sin this is. Here's the root really of all sin is this arrogance which shows up in these two ways, insecurity and feelings of superiority. Uh, the first ex expression of pride, as I mentioned, was intimidation, and the second was this condescending attitude. The problem is pride, and I've I shared this with the marriage retreat already, but we are born with original sin, and at the heart of original sin is this arrogance, this sense of self-importance, or this sense of I'm, it's me first, it's all about me. I want everyone to serve me. I want, I want to be taken care of. I want to be served. I want to be at the center of the attention at the party, okay? That is original sin. Its source is Adam, and this pride is the heart, core, and soul of original sin. It affects us constantly. Most of the time, we are not aware of its presence. It's, it's influencing us, and we're not even aware of it. The serpent told Eve that when she ate of the forbidden fruit, she would be like God, knowing good and evil. Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. God judged Adam by giving him up to the delusion that he, he was like God. And that that's a common way that God brings judgment into our lives, that we experience his disfavor, is that he gives us up to the sin that we are pursuing. Uh, we have to, I mean, 
God is patient and merciful and slow to anger. So he doesn't usually just do that right away. But if we persist in pursuing some sin, knowing that God's displeased with this, but we're pursuing it anyway, oftentimes the way judgment comes is he gives us up. That sin begins to enslave us, okay? And, and God allows that to happen. And that's what happened with Adam and Eve. Pride is the root of all the other sins, just as humility is the root of all the virtues. If you want to bear, become fruitful and exhibit the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, you have to become humble because humble people are loving, humble people are joyful, humble people are thankful, humble people are patient people, humble people are peaceful people, humble people are self-disciplined people. All the fruits of the Spirit come from humility just as ultimately all the sin in our life is founded on arrogance or pride. Pride is responsible for most of the emotional pain and sorrow that we experience. It's at the root of all of our insecurities, as you saw in my story with the bike guy I was comparing myself to. Comparing ourselves to others is deadly, and what causes us to do it is this lust to be something that we're not. We might already be that, and we don't know it. It doesn't make any difference. It's insecurity is caused by arrogance. We want to kill insecurity, we have to get humble. Humble people are secure people. Proud people are generally very insecure people. It's the root, pride is the root of restlessness and unhappiness. So, but here's the good news this morning. The incarnation, Christ's descent, is what saves proud people. It atones for our arrogance and our insecurity and our pride and our self-centeredness. Now, we're going to read the Philippians 2 in just a minute, but before we do that, I want to give us a little background. Uh, and that, first of all, the incarnation is not a doctrine we would ever dream up. Think about it for a moment. I, I got a Christmas card one year, this is 20 years ago, from a friend who was in Campus Crusade. He worked with Campus Crusade. It was the most amazing card, and I got rid of it, and I wished I never had, and I've never been able to find a copy of it. But on the front of the card, it said, many people have claimed to be God. And it had pictures of Pharaoh, Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, the, the uh, King of Japan, on and on and on. There was about 20 pictures on the front of the card. And you opened a card up, and it was just this in bold print. But only one has God claimed to be man. Now just think about that for a moment. That's the incarnation. This is a Christmas card. Only one time has God claimed to be man. It's upside down, isn't it? We, we worship an upside down God. We're always trying to make ourselves into God, but God is coming down and making himself into man, who is nothing. And that was the point of the card. To appreciate the incarnation, we must think in terms of God's infinity. Psalm 145 verse 3 reads, God's greatness is unsearchable, which means it's infinite. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, I think you've got this on the slide there somewhere, whoever's running the slides. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness, 200 nations roughly in the world today. First, 
Isaiah describes him as a drop from a bucket. A drop from a bucket is very small. Then he says, no, 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 that's not good enough. They're dust on the scales. Dust doesn't move the scales at all. Then he says, no, 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 that's, that's too important. All the nations are as nothing. Drop, dust, nothing. Then he says, no, no, Isaiah says, that's too much. They're less than nothing and emptiness. We think we're really important. We think the world is really important. Here's God's description of our importance. The importance is the important point is we are not emptiness. We're all flesh and blood, all seven billion of us on planet Earth. So why did Isaiah write this? He knows we are finite, and he knows that God is infinite. He also knows that anything finite is almost meaningless compared to something that is infinite. The Puritans used to have this expression, to the degree that sin becomes bitter, grace becomes sweet. Would you say that with me? To the degree that sin becomes bitter, grace becomes sweet. Say it one more time. To the degree that sin becomes bitter, grace becomes sweet. See, this is... uh, The more we grasp our unworthiness, the more we enjoy the love of God and the more rest we have before God, the more rest we have, the more we're just able to live in his grace and accept his grace despite all of our imperfections. And God's infinity is part of coming to grips with our sinfulness. To the the degree that we see ourselves for who we really are, the incarnation becomes utterly sweet. In other words, astounding. And it is because we think so highly of ourselves that the incarnation has so little impact upon us. It follows from the above that Christ's descent was an infinite emptying. And that is why Paul describes his love as love that surpasses knowledge in Ephesians 3. So think about this for a moment. If something's infinite, that means it goes on forever and ever and never ends. So the universe is gigantic as far as we understand it. But it's finite, which means compared to God, since God is infinite, the universe gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until it becomes almost nothing compared to God. So when we think about the incarnation, we're talking about a God, God's Son, who descended an infinite distance to save us. And we can't even comprehend this. So God is infinite, you'll spend eternity without end exploring the depths of his moral beauty and his greatness and you'll never get to the bottom of it. And that God came down from infinity and became finite in a human body. And the distance is is incomprehensible to us. The depths of his, the distance that he came down. So that's why Paul says, this is love that surpasses all knowledge. We can't even get our hands around it. Here's how John Flavel, one of the great 17th century Puritan preachers, grappled with this truth. Thank you. Can you read that? Is it too small? No, that's good. For the sun to fall from its sphere and be degraded into a wandering atom, for an angel to be turned out of heaven and be converted into a silly fly or worm had been no such great abasement, for they were but creatures before 
and so they could abide still, though in an inferior order of species. Flavel's saying, okay, there's a big distance between an angel and a worm, but it's a finite distance. That's what he's saying. But the distance betwixt the highest and lowest species of creatures is but a finite distance. The angel and worm dwell not so far apart, but for the infinite glorious creator of all things to become a creature is a mystery exceeding all human understanding. The distance between God and the highest order of creatures is an infinite distance. And there we just have to rest. It's beyond us completely. So why did Christ descend an infinite distance? Well, he descended an infinite distance to atone for our sins, which were infinitely serious in God's sight. Why would I say infinitely serious? Because our sins were against an infinite being of infinite glory and majesty and goodness and greatness. And the measure of a sin is, is according to who I've sinned against. If I stepped on a fly on the pulpit here and killed it, nobody would think anything of that. If I shot your dog, you might think a lot more of that because the dog has more importance. If I murder a human being, now it's, that's a capital crime. But I'm sinning against God who is infinite in his majesty and glory. And so to atone for our sin, God had to balance the scales by coming down an infinite distance and sending an, a being of infinite value to the cross to suffer, to atone for sins infinitely serious so that we wouldn't go to hell, which is a place of infinite duration because our sins are infinitely serious in God's sight. You go to hell, you'll suffer for eternity, and you'll never satisfy God's justice. That's how serious our sin is. Just our everyday idolatry. We were talking in the car, uh, Judy and, and Jen Cox were today about uh, the commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You don't need to know anything more than that, do you? None of us have done that for maybe more than a few seconds in our life. And uh, so it's a serious issue. And God says, yep, it's serious, and I've got a serious atonement. I'm going to take care of it. So our main point is this. Christ took the humbling that we deserve so that we could get the exaltation that he deserves. So we're going to reread Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. And if you have your Bibles open, do we have that? Yeah, there it is on the screen. You can follow along with me. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. But what Paul's saying is, you think like Christ is what he's saying. And if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, this mindset is there in principle in you. So you need to cultivate it. In other words, think like Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now the Greek word there is, is the word for slave. It's translated servant but it's really the word for slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, there's seven steps down that Christ takes there, and wouldn't you know it, seven's the number for perfection. We're going to go through those quickly, and then we're going to make some application. The first thing he did is he did not grasp for equality. Verse 6 tells us that although Jesus was equal with God, he did not grasp for equality with God. And you know something? That's not how I related to that fit cyclist, did I? I was grasping for equality. That's why I was feeling all intimidated. 
I, here, we, here he was, here I was, and I wanted to be, I wanted to be esteemed in his eyes. I wanted him to see me like a really fit, cool, hot cyclist that could do a 200-mile race, okay? I wanted equality. Actually, if the truth is known, I would have liked superiority. But, and you're the same way, aren't you? But Jesus did just the opposite. He was equal with God the Father, Jesus and God, and he went just like this. He came under God the Father and renounced. He didn't quit being God. He didn't, he didn't renounce his equality of being. He couldn't quit being God. He, but he, he renounced all the perks and benefits that came with deity and took on human flesh. So... To a rights infatuated culture, this is almost incomprehensible, isn't it? He gave up his rights, in other words. Number two, Jesus emptied himself. The text tells us that he emptied himself, verse 7. By taking a human nature, he emptied himself of the benefits and rewards of divinity. So, for example, in his humanity, he emptied himself of omnipotence. As God, he was omnipotent. And he strengthened himself instead with weakness. Paul tells us he was crucified in weakness, yet lives by the power of God. Wow. Omnipotence to weakness. Strung up on a cross naked, unable to save himself or help himself at all, dying in utter human weakness. His human nature emptied itself of divine omniscience which is absolute knowledge. When asked about the timing of his second coming, he responded, concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, there's a mystery here. He was both the God and man without, with one person with two natures. And, in his, of course, in his divine nature, he knew all that. But in his human nature, he didn't. And we, don't, we can't understand this. We just have to accept it. But what an ultimate abasement and lowering for God to go through. His human nature emptied itself of immortality and put on mortality. God, who is infinite life. Anyone gets close to God, they experience eternal life because God is a superabundant life. And he empties himself of that superabundant life and agrees to die. He's the only person born that would have never died because he had never sinned. And death is a penalty for sin. And so Jesus was immortal when he was born. And yet he agreed to take on mortality, take on our sins so that he could go to the cross and die, bear the penalty for our sin. So he did not grasp for equality. He emptied himself. He became his father's slave, number three. Verse seven tells us he took a step a third step down, he became the father's slave, taking the form of a servant, doulos. The word translated servant by the ESV is the Greek word doulos, the word for a common slave. We despise slavery, don't we? In our culture, slavery is the ultimate sin, whether it's racial slavery or any kind of slavery. Jesus volunteered to become a slave, gave up to his father. The son can do nothing of his own accord, Jesus said, but only what he sees the father doing. And this for Jesus was not a burden. 
Rather, Jesus delighted to have it this way. My food, he said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, this is what we would need to be like to get into heaven. But we're not like this. The good news is we have a wonderful Savior who was like this. And when we believe in him, all of that is imputed to us, and God considers Bill Farley to be someone who says, I could do nothing of my own accord, but only what I see the Father doing. And my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's all I care about. I don't, I'm not like that, but God considers me that way because I'm clothed in Christ's righteousness. Be really thankful that Jesus obeyed God this way. Number four, he became human. And Jesus took a four step down. Verse seven tells us that he was born in the likeness of men. The creator of all things took a part of his creation, a human body to himself. What an incredible, humbling condescension. And by the way, he still has a human body in heaven with him right now. I would imagine to the son, second person of the Trinity, that is a bit of a, a burden to be packing around a human body in heaven. I don't understand this fully, but, but you know, he created. Through him, all things were created. So the great creator comes and be, take, becomes a part of this lowly thing he created, but all the nations are nothing less than nothing in God's sight, okay? And then fifthly, he humbled himself by obeying. Like slavery, obedience is an unpopular word in the Western world. We value freedom, autonomy, independence. We value self-fulfillment. Nobody tells me what to do. A guy at our church at home who worked at one of our associate pastors who's from Canada, I said to him, Jeff, what do you think is the big difference between Americans and Canadians? He said, you Americans really value independence. Canadians value equality. I thought that was a really interesting observation because that's true about us, isn't it? We put a huge emphasis on independence. And I think that's a good thing. But the important thing is that Jesus put all that aside. He became totally dependent. He became a slave to his father. He valued obedience. It was a voluntary slavery motivated by joy. Pride, by contrast, motivates disobedience. Every time I disobey God, what I'm saying to God is, God, I know better than you. Yeah, I know you told me not to steal the Eighth Commandment, but I'm going to cheat on my taxes anyway because I need that money. And uh, you don't care. And I know how to make myself happy better than you know how to make myself happy. I'm just going to do things my own way. And whenever I do that, what I'm really saying is, I'm God, not you. I make the rules. God doesn't make the rules. Here's a lesson for life. Whoever makes the rules is God. And when you make up your own rules for life, you're, you're saying to God, I'm God, you're not God, and you are exhibiting profound arrogance and pride. You are participating in the devil's sin. And whenever you obey God, what you're saying is, God, you know better than I do. I'm not going to cheat on my taxes because you know better. Not that, but I fear you, Lord, and I know that if I cheat on my taxes, there will be consequences in this life. And I don't want those consequences. 
And I believe that you're really here and that you're active and you're, you're involved in my life and you have a power as a sovereign God to make things change positively or negatively. Ah, oh, no way am I cheating on my taxes. You are God, you are good. I know that your commands are there to make me happy. And so, Lord, I don't understand this, but I'm going to trust you and I'm going to do the right thing. See, that's humility. Now I'm saying, God, you're God, I'm not. I'm going to humble myself. Well, the text tells us Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. And it was necessary that he did that because he had he not done that, none of us would be saved. Obedience says to whomever you are obeying, you and your plans are more important than mine. You, God, are more important than I am. You, God, are God and I'm not. And sixthly, he submitted to death. Not only did he humble himself by obeying, but he obeyed unto death. Remember I said he was born immortal? He would have, he would have had he not taken sin upon himself, he could have never died. He didn't have original sin. He was born with a sinless nature. But he said, remember the Bible tells us that God hates death so much that anybody that touched a corpse in the Old Testament was unclean. That's because God hates death. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. Death is God's enemy. God hates death. It's the antithesis of everything God is. But Jesus came and submitted to death on a cross. To die, he had to agree to take our sin upon himself. And lastly, not only did he obey by submitting to death, but he obeyed by submitting to death on a cross. So here we have this infinite descent. Jesus didn't just die. He submitted to the most horrible form of capital punishment ever invented by humanity. He submitted to death on a cross. Now, oftentimes people hung on the cross for three or four days and died of thirst because of the way they were uh, crucified. Usually there wasn't enough blood loss to precipitate death right away. And Jesus, when he was crucified, I don't think he knew how long it would take. It took six hours, as we know. And so it took six days to create the world. Man was created on the sixth day. Jesus atoned for six hours on the cross for our sins. Six is the number for humanity. But, you know, for God to submit to that, Jesus' seven steps down was an infinite humbling. It's infinite. And as we have noted, the distance between someone, something infinite and something finite is by definition infinite. It is immeasurable. Jesus' status, his glory, and his majesty were and are infinite. He left all of this to enter our finite world. It was an infinite humbling to atone for sins infinitely serious. So far, we said that we need a great salvation, one that will atone for our pride and, sat the, and that sat, that sat, the pride that saturates every cell of our being. I made it my ambition to be equal to or better than that fit cyclist that came to my rescue. Then I looked down on the slow cyclist. And that's our whole life, isn't it? Not just me. The incarnation was the exact opposite. God's son made it his ambition to travel an infinite distance down. He renounced his equality with God. He became a man. He descended into almost nothingness in order to make God the Father and you and me more important than himself. 
He voluntarily surrendered greatness and made us more important than himself. That's why Philippians chapter 2 begins. Consider others more important than yourself. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others more important than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which we just read, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he's in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And that's because Paul sees Christ doing all this. He's saying, put on the mind of Christ. So let's conclude with so for what, so what. So I always ask the question when I work on a sermon, so what? How should this affect me Monday morning? The incarnation expresses a pride-conquering humility, and it lays bare or exposes the heart of the divine nature. Here we see what God is like. Here we see God's nature. It shows us the mind of Christ. By contrast, we aren't too concerned with the sin of pride. We are much more concerned with the sins of adultery, murder, sexual perversion, or drug addiction. But to God, pride is the really big sin. It's the anti-God sin. It's us making ourselves God. We'd never say that. We'd never admit that. But that's really what's going on, and that's how God sees it. It motivates adultery, murder, and drug addiction. The Bible constantly repeats this unchanging principle. He that humbles himself, excuse me, he that exalts himself will be humbled, but he that humbles himself will be exalted. And that's what happens in Philippians 2. Jesus takes these seven steps down, and it says, but God has highly exalted him and made him, given him the name above every name, the, the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow and every tongue confess to Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's because Jesus went so low, God raised him up so high. The same happens with us. To the degree that we humble ourselves, God will constantly lift us up. The first application is this. We deserve an infinite humbling. We've mentioned this already. Uh, Humility is the great virtue that God seeks, and pride is the great sin that he hates. Here is some biblical proof. Who does God lift up? Psalm 147, verse 6 reads, The Lord lifts up the humble. What does the Lord require of us? Micah chapter 6, verse 8 reads, To walk humbly with your God. To whom does the Lord look? Isaiah 66, verse 2 reads, The Lord looks to the one who is humble and contrite and who trembles at my word. How many of you have ever trembled at God's word? You know, I remember being very convicted by this in 1993, this text, and thinking to myself, I don't, I've never trembled at God's word. What does this mean? Had to have that kind of awesome fear of God as I'm reading the Bible that I'm inwardly trembling, you know. I'm just moved deeply. Where does God dwell? Isaiah 57, with the one who is contrite and lowly of heart. Who does God save? Psalm 18, verse 27. God saves a humble people, but the haughty eye he brings down. That's because every expression of faith, every, real, every true, we're saved by faith alone, but every true biblical, all true biblical faith is a humbling faith. I'm saying, God, I'm needy. I can't save myself. I'm a sinner. I need grace. In other words, what you're doing is you're humbling yourself and you're entering the kingdom of God with a humbling faith. 
So the Bible says, who does God save? God saves the humble people, but the haughty eye he brings down. Who does the Lord avoid? Psalm 138, verse 6, the haughty God knows from afar. Who does God oppose? James chapter 4, verse 6 reads, God opposes the proud. Who does the Lord punish? Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5 reads, The arrogant in heart God will punish. What will God judge on the last day? Isaiah 2 says, I think, three times. This, I have to go back and check it, this text. The haughty looks of man will be brought low, and the lofty pride of man will be humbled on the last day, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. How will the proud respond, respond on the day of final judgment? Isaiah chapter 2. And the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Isaiah 2. Read Isaiah 2 later today. Therefore, an infinite distance, infinite descent by Jesus was necessary to atone for this sin which God sees as so horrible and to clothe us in Christ's humility so that God could exalt us. Second application, God saves us by uniting us with Christ in his humbling. Here is the good news. Here is the wonderful news. I've said everything I've said to get to this point this morning. Here's what I'd love to talk about. Your faith unites you with Christ. Theologians call it our union with Christ. Think of a Velcro, piece of Velcro attaching you to Christ. And when you believe the gospel, you're united with Christ, you're union with Christ, and everything that Christ is becomes yours. Christ descends an infinite distance. God considers you to have descended that same infinite distance and to have humbled yourself as Christ humbles himself. And on the basis of Christ's humbling, you get into eternal glory. Even though you're a proud, idolatrous, double-minded sinner like me, you're going to get into eternal glory where there's nothing but humility in heaven. No, nobody that's proud would want to be in heaven because they'd hate what they see there, which is just all these people serving each other and loving each other and humbling themselves and losing their lives with great joy. No proud person would like that. No proud person wants anything to do with heaven. But you'll get into heaven despite the fact that you're proud because Jesus humbled himself this way and that's the kind of humility you need to be saved and you get it through Christ. So you can go forward as a fallen sinner struggling with pride, trying to be humble but finding it very difficult for yourself and you can go forward with a great joy and great freedom knowing that the issue has been settled with God. This incredible thing that you need, you have as a gift from Christ. And not only that, remember, everyone that exalts himself will be humbled, and he that humbles himself will be exalted. And because Jesus humbled himself once so low, God raised him so high, you went with him in his exaltation as well. And now you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, and we are going to get the reward that Christ deserves, not the judgment we deserve. Christ took the judgment we deserve on the cross so that we can get the reward that his humiliation deserves. And that's sharing the glory of God. Seated with Christ in God, seated in Christ at the right hand of God the Father, judging the angels. Mysteries that are way beyond me.
Okay. But the important point is, you get, Christ took the judgment that we deserve for our pride and arrogance so that we can get the reward that his humility deserves. I mean, wow. Number three, and we've already mentioned number three, Christ unites us with, the incarnation unites us with Christ and his exaltation. And fourth and lastly, the incarnation motivates humility. Not only does it solve our humility problem, but it motivates us to become humble. Those who really see this want to be humble. First of all, because they want to be happy, and humble people are happy people. They want to imitate Christ. They repent of their sins and their failings. All virtue flows from seeing virtue in Christ first. That's a really important principle. The scriptures tells us in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. Say that with me. We love because he first loved us. Beholding the glory of God, I'm being transformed from one degree of glory to another. I don't change by looking here at my failings and my weaknesses and feeling guilty and unworthy and all that sort of thing. I look away from myself to Christ and I look at him and I watch him. And, I tr- and I, the more I do, the more I want to imitate him. See, that's the idea. And so as we see what Christ has done for us, we, and we really see that by the power of the Holy Spirit through illumination, then what happens in us is, I want to be like that. Lord, that's what I want. I want to be like Jesus. Man, he is such an amazing savior. And his moral beauty is so incredible. God, I want to, Jesus, I want to be like you. Help me, Lord. Help me change. And the Holy Spirit says, amen, good and faithful servant. That's exactly what I was waiting for you to say. I will help you change. Jonathan Edwards says, everything God does in our life, everything from the preaching of the gospel is to humble us. So you sometimes wonder why you change so slowly. It's because God is humbling you. Remember he led the Jews in the wilderness, the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy, to humble them so that they would learn to live by by God's word alone, by faith alone. He, in other words, he stripped them. He led them out into the wilderness where there was no food and no water and no anything and didn't tell them why he was doing that or where they were going. Why, the Bible tells us, to humble them. In other words, he led them into their need and through their need they became humble. And that's what God does with us all, all through our life. You're struggling with problems and issues is because, I mean, God could do that and they'd all be gone, couldn't he? But he doesn't because we need to be humbled. And we need, the more humble we get, the more dependent on Christ we get. The more we need Christ, the more we love Christ, the more joy we feel in Christ, the more rest we feel in our spiritual life. The first place to apply all this is in your family, in your marriage. The first place to apply it is to do this. Consider your spouse more important than yourself. We talked about this a lot at the marriage retreat this week. Children, consider your parents more important than yourself. Humble yourself by obeying your parents. You may think you know better than they, but you really don't. As a 75-year-old, I can tell you that. Just as I, when I was a kid, thought I knew better than my parents, and I didn't. Apply this at home. That's the most important place to apply this, is in your marriage and in with your children. 
So let's bow our heads and worship. Let's thank God for his goodness. Let me lead us in prayer in closing. Father, we are arrogant. We are a self-centered people. We deserve to be humbled forever in hell. But the measure of your love for us is this. Your son made an infinite descent into humiliation. He did this to atone for our pride, which is infinitely serious in your sight. Now you have imputed Christ's humility to us. And on the basis of this humility, someday you will exalt us. Thank you, Father. Our Father, thank you. Thank you. We are and will be forever eternally grateful for your Son's incarnation and our participation in it through faith. Amen.